What is going on, Almost Canon listeners? It's me, your host, Nicholas Willard. And today, I wanted to talk about Jaws. Yeah, the movie. Um, uh, 1975, Steven Spielberg, you know, all that, all that good stuff. Um... But it, it's more than just a movie. So, I'm sure everyone knows Jaws is about uh, this town, this beach resort town called Amity, Amity Island, to be exact. Uh, I believe it's it's uh, Martha's Vineyard, uh, Massachusetts. I think is is the real location. You know, and I've I've been to Nantucket. I I haven't been to Martha's Vineyard. I've been to the Cape down there and all that. Um, but yeah, so it's this little beach resort town. We all know. We've all seen the movie. And this this girl, uh, she's going skinny dipping. She gets attacked by the shark, and uh, you know, mostly eaten. And they they find her body, and they they you know the towns arguing over you know is it a shark is it not a shark should we close the beaches blah blah blah. and people start dying left and right and they got you know the sheriff brody and um uh who else is it sheriff brody matt hooper who who is this ichthyologist you know he studies fish and sharks he's played by uh richard dreyfus and 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 roy schneider plays uh 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 chief brody but um you know they team up with this this scary old sea captain named quint uh played by robert shaw and you know they go hunt down this shark right they want to get their revenge save the town and all this all this good stuff and it's great it's a great movie um and for for almost canon plus listeners we're gonna do a me and uh bank are gonna do banks coming back to do a uh you know just an overview we're gonna go over jaws 1975 jaws you know give our take on it but but anyway so so this movie jaws well it's a great movie you know it scared everyone out of the water it made steven spielberg who he is today total commercial success um maybe people most people know now that it was it's ba- you know it's not based off of but there is a story behind it that is true uh that were historical events and and at the time changed history as we know it and that that story would take place in New Jersey um, we'll get into all this in just a minute. You know, I, I had, I had some news I wanted to bring up before we, we really dug into this, this subject. Uh, and it's just me tonight. No guests, no, no guest hosts, just, just you 
and me. But um, so I was digging around online, and I, there was just like it seemed like a pretty crazy week for for animals too, which was which was weird. But but before we get into all that, I I found this article on um on wyonews.com. And let me let me just read you this 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 title right here. Surprised and concerned, scientists find groundwater extracted by humans has sh- shifted tilt of Earth's axis. <laughs> that just like sounds pretty crazy, right? Uh, and I was reading a little more. It's 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 like a new study has left scientists surprised and concerned after it was found that humans have pumped out so much groundwater in the past two decades that it has shifted the tilt of the Earth's axis. According to the findings of the research published in Geophysical Research Letters, a journal by the American Geophysical Union, the Earth has tilted as much as 80 centimeters, that is 31.5 inches, between 1993 and 2010 which has been attributed to humans pumping out groundwater and moving it elsewhere. Uh, so this, this study, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe it just sounds worse than it is. Who, who knows? But the study is, it's based on like, uh, uh, climate models that it, you know, estimate, I, I guess they estimated that like, over 2,000 gigatons of water have been pumped out between 93, 2010. Uh, and it, it says right here, that's enough water to fill Lake Victoria in Africa and would weigh as much as as 5.5 million Empire State buildings. Uh, so who knows? Maybe it's not a huge deal. I, I don't know, but it kind of sounds creepy to me. And when you think of a POFIS coming in, in just a, a few short years, uh, we we kind of want to stay exactly where we are <laughs> when it comes to our location in space. So, but yeah, so that was that. That just jumped out at me, and then I just saw a bunch of. Well, I guess before we get we get into the the um these these animal articles, I wanted to there was there was one other thing I wanted to bring up, and. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is my hot take and maybe it's too soon. I don't know. I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying anything. It's just a thought I had right from the start when I heard about, you know, we all heard and this the tragedy of the Titanic sub uh how it imploded underwater. Um and it just got me thinking instantly like the the minute I heard that 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 sub was carrying one of the richest uh people in Pakistan. So this guy, he technically he doesn't live in Pakistan, but his family is in Pakistan, his money is in Pakistan, you know, his business is in Pakistan. Uh and he this guy was on on this sub with his son and his name is Shahazda Dawood and you know he's like a i think he's the ceo of some you know some conglomerate that you know they deal in all sorts of different stuff but he he also i guess he controls a large amount of money uh that goes towards education 
and scholarships. And I don't know, you, someone would have to dig into this and figure out why someone would want to kill this guy. But, you know, when it comes to people with lots and lots of money and killed under mysterious circumstances, you know, you got to ask these questions because sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes the truth hurts and this, this weird stuff happens for a reason. But yeah, so I wanted to bring that up. Okay, now let's get into this this crazy animal news. There's, there's, I got a few articles. I don't know what was going on in the animal kingdom this these past couple of weeks, but, but all right. So this first one I got, June twenty second, a fully preserved cave bear. You know, a short nosed cave bear was discovered in in Arctic Russia by reindeer herders on the Lahaskivsky Islands. You know, that's up in the Arctic Circle, obviously, in, in Russia, Siberia. And I got I got this quote. Uh, this is the first and only find of its kind. A whole bear carcass and soft tissues. It is completely preserved with all internal organs in place, including even its nose. That was researcher Leanna Gregorvia. That that's what she had to say, and she's I guess she's from the Northeastern Federal University in Yakutsk, which is like a Russian port city on the the Liana River in Siberia. So she's obviously up there, but yeah, you know I'll post that article. I'll post the other article about the planet shifting axis and this this cave bear article in the show notes, but. You know, and when I hear something like that, I'm like, oh, here we go. Here we go. We got Jurassic Park popping up in our backyards now. Uh, not really, but if they can, you know, they've been they've been searching the planet for, you know, searching the Arctic Circle for these preserved mammoths because, you know, the ones they have, the, the DNA isn't properly preserved. So they need these fully preserved speci- specimens uh, in order to clone them, right? And now they have a fully preserved cave bear uh, with internal organs, uh, soft tissues like this guy. They'll be cloning this sucker in no time. You you mix that with you know maybe you you know how they and and in Jurassic Park they mix the dino DNA with 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 frogs from North Africa or whatever. Uh, in Russia, they'll be mixing short-nosed cave bear DNA with, with I don't know, polar bear or, or, or brown bear. Uh, and we'll be seeing this, you know, there'll be some reindeer herders or, 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 or gold diggers out in the, out deep in Siberia, and they're going to come across the, a short notes cave bear out of, I don't know, some cave or something. Just, we'll, we'll be hearing about it soon. Uh, what else did I got? A 16 foot goblin shark. A goblin shark. So this is a rare shark. Lives at the bottom of the ocean, way down deep. Uh, it's got the ability to, to open its mouth and then 
you know, open its mouth and then the inside of its mouth shoots out like a like a xenomorph from from aliens or alien and, uh, you know, grabs its prey. It's like, oh, oh, and then it sucks it back in. I think I think it was like I I, for, I forget the exact measurements, but I, I read in the article that, that this particular shark, this 16 foot shark was able to spit its teeth out like 17 inches or something like that. Uh, so, yeah, this, this goblin shark was caught off the coast of Taiwan, you know, by a deep sea trawler. Uh, and it was sent to a museum. And I also saw that a hiker had been killed by a black bear in Arizona. Like, that's fairly rare for a black bear to do that. Usually they're more afraid of you, you know, than we are of them. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure we've all seen the video of that that bear attacking that hiker on the, you know, the rock face. And now we get now I hear about this, this black bear killing this hiker in Arizona that, you know, it's pretty sad. Uh, what else do I got? Alligator kills python. You know, somebody got a somebody got a video of this alligator carrying this huge python in its mouth, and then it shakes it like a dog. Uh, and kind of like throws it off to the side. Someone got a video of that. Like, you know, you think of like all these pythons taking over the Everglades. Um. Which, I mean, they have. Don't get me wrong. Python, you know, they're an invasive species. They've been, you know, let go by countless amounts of people, probably. And and all these hurricanes down there just destroying, you know, pet stores. And these snakes get out. And they, they thrive in this environment. Uh, you know, it's almost like the python was meant to be there. I'd say give it a couple years and people are going to start seeing 30... 40, 50 foot snakes out there too. I wouldn't, I would not doubt that. You know how big the Everglades is? It's like half the state of, of Florida, you know. The majority of people are on the coastlines. You got the Everglades smack that in the middle and go up into to Georgia. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if if you see start seeing freaking Yakamama sized snakes in in uh <laughs> Florida. What else I got here? All right, here's my last one. I'm sure we all saw this video too. So this dude's on a fishing boat, you know, with his buddies, and he like dips his hands in the water, and he's like, you know, they're all laughing about it. And they're like laughing about him getting bit by something. It sounds like they say they're laughing about him getting bit by a shark. Maybe it's an alligator. And then he does it again, and a shark comes out of the water and bites him on the hand and pulls him in. Like, it, it obviously, you know, any shark is a is too big of a shark, but luckily it wasn't a huge shark, and he kind of it didn't necessarily grab him by the hand and pull him in. I think I think he he more fell into the water, but but still, I mean that shark probably could have uh, killed him. It it was it it looked like a bull shark from what what I could see, uh, quickly of its head popping up. It was you know flat and and rounded. But uh, but yeah, those are it's like something something happened in the animal kingdom these past weeks, and animals are going crazy. But uh, that's really all I got for news. So yeah, we'll we'll let's start let's start this week's topic on the Matawan Creek Killer.
1916 Jersey Shore shark attacks uh, right after a word from your sponsors. What's going on, guys? It's me, Nick Willard. You knew. You knew that already. I know. But, you know, I say it, you know, I said it last week. I said it the week before. And I'm going to say it next week. Please, please, please like and subscribe. Uh, Give us a five-star review. A nice, pretty rating. Five-star review, pretty rating. (laughs) What am I saying? Give us a five-star rating and a nice, pretty review. Boom! There we go. We would, you know, we would just appreciate it so much. We're, you know, we put a lot of work into this. I put a lot of work into this podcast throughout every week. My wife is sick of it (laughs) already, you know, but I'm not giving up. Uh, I put a lot of work into this podcast. I want it to grow. You know, I want to be up there with the big dogs. What am I saying? I don't. So, yeah, give us the rating. Give us the review, please. Uh, And you can contact us on. What do we got? We got an Instagram, which is at almost canon pod. We got a Gmail, which is almost canon pod at gmail.com. We got a Facebook page, which is Almost Canon Podcast. You got a cool story, just call the number, leave a voicemail, and I'll either play it or I'll get a hold of you. But yeah, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, uh, like and subscribe to the podcast, to the Facebook page, Instagram page. Please give us a five-star rating and a nice review. I mean, that's it. Simple. It's so easy. It really, it's 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 ridiculously easy. Um, you know, I I was never one to really rate and review podcasts that I listen to either. But I'm asking you now. It's so easy. You go to the you know the podcast page. You go to where that you know all the different episodes are. You scroll to the bottom. You, there's a little star bar. You know, one, two, three, four, five. You click on five. Or whatever you want to give. And that's it. It's as simple as that. That's that's the rating. And if you have time, you can leave a review, which is always great too. I mean, we love reviews. And as I said before in the last episode, for the next 50 ratings, you rate the show, you get a hold of me, uh, you know, through Facebook or Instagram or whatever. I will send you a free almost canon sticker. You know, the rainbow exploding head guy. Uh, It says almost canon podcast on the bottom. But yeah, rate the show, get your free sticker, all that good stuff. Um, That's really all I got to say. Catch you on the flip side. All right, almost canon listeners, all you almost canoners and almost canonites and acolytes. What are we talking about today? Uh, we are talking about the events that inspired the book Jaws, that inspired the movie Jaws. Uh, oh, and by the way, the movie, way better than the book. I read the book, but I, I, technically I listened to the book on Audible, but, uh, 
uh, I, I want, you know, I love the movie. I've seen the movie, uh, I don't know, hundreds of times, <laughs> you know, every time around this year, I, I watch Jaws, uh, one through three. Yes. I am a fan of the, the sequels, not the fourth one. We don't talk about that one. Um, as, as Michael Caine, I believe said, no, I haven't seen the movie. But I've seen the house it built. Um, yeah, the don't watch the fourth one. It's it's no good. But Jaws two is actually really good. You know, it, it it's not as good as the first one, but it is good. And three is just I don't know. It's like a a comfort movie or something. It there's something about it. it but but yeah. So Jaws. What we're what we're gonna talk about? It inspired, you know. Jaws, and that is the 1916 shark attacks off the Jersey Shore, as well as Matawan Creek. So I'm going to try to put this into like a narrative, you know, make it, I don't know, somewhat entertaining instead of just a bunch of facts thrown at you. So, so it was the summer of 1916, uh, the start of a new century the birth of the modern era you know cities up and down the east coast they were quickly growing into these booming uh metropolises of the 20th century so they were modernizing faster than than they had ever before you know this is 16 years out of the new century a lot going on right now. World War One is raging in Europe. The United States is going to enter it in, you know, just a few months from the summer of 1916. You know, six, you know, six, seven, eight months out from this date. Uh, but yeah, so so factories they they were just taking over, and and people who had previously been, you know farmers or people who who just worked the land as a living for i don't know decades or generations they were moving out of of these rural areas and and they were coming into the cities uh because these factories they were the output was was at an all-time high and as a result of this you know more and more uh, americans were, were leaving the countryside for these 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 big booming cities, you know, cities like New York, which which was the second largest city in the world at the, at the time. That that's the whole world, and and you know you got Brooklyn and Philadelphia, Boston, Baltimore. Uh, they were all becoming overcrowded, leading not not only to uh, the wealthier citizens wanting to get away, but also the middle class. The middle class, they were they finally, you know, they had the time and the money to to go on vacations for the first time and, you know, maybe forever. And so these beach resorts up and down the, the East Coast, but main, you know, the most popular ones were in, in New Jersey. It was, you know, they these these areas were, were more laid back than than you know any beach in New York off you know off the coast of New York City or or whatever and since New York was highly populated New Yorkers were just you know jumping on the train and then heading to 
to to Jersey where they would go to the Jersey Shore and meet Snooky and and Jay Wow. No, I'm just kidding. But at the same time, I'm not. These New Yorkers, they would literally just get on the afternoon train, go to Jersey, and swim at these beaches and these beach resorts. So it was it was a big thing. And at the time, you know, these beachgoers who were who were swimming in in like literally swimming in the ocean for the first time, you hadn't really swam in the ocean. You know, around this time, I, I'm sure there were people who swam in the ocean for fun, but, it, you know, fun wasn't a thing until recently because there was always so much work to be done. So so these beachgoers, they had never really heard of. Sharks attacking people, and I'm sure the a majority of them had never even didn't even really know what a shark was. They, you know, they thought it was just a big fish, a big goldfish or something. Uh, there hadn't been a reported shark attack in the United States until this time. And being attacked by a shark and being bit by a shark you're provoking are, are two different things. So, you know, if there's a fisherman who, who, who caught a shark in its net and is, you know, playing with it and it gets bit, that's different than getting attacked by a shark. You know, and at the time, it was believed that there were only a couple man-eating sharks, and those were great whites and tigers. And in 1916, ichthyology wasn't really a thing. So ichthyology is the study of fish. It had just barely started in the 1800s, really. There were really just people who were just studying fish, uh, within, I don't know, the late 1800s. And and they obviously, but, you know, late 1800s to 1916, you don't, it's not enough time to get all this information down and to learn all this stuff. So it was a very new class of thinking. And it was believed that these man-eating sharks, these tigers or these these uh, great whites, they they solely kept to warmer waters. So like the Caribbean, Florida, uh, Georgia, you know, they were seen from time to time in North and South Carolina, but it was really like, you know, those Southern warmer waters. So seeing a shark in Jersey or New York or New England was just out of the question. It wasn't even in people's minds at all. We go to the beach today, you know, we look. I know here in, in Vermont, there's obviously no beach, but we there's beaches in New Hampshire and Maine. You know, we look to see if there's been sharks seen off the coast because they're, you know, they see them. And, and also at this time, there weren't helicopters that, that could fly around and spot these things. It was people, you know, within lifeguard chairs or, or a fisherman who had accidentally uh, netted a shark or whatever. So I'm almost not surprised, you know, they hadn't seen a shark until this time. July 1916, you know, for the July's coming up, big holiday. And then Jaws, it's all going on around the 4th of July holiday. And so is this 1916 shark attacks. So in Jaws, you know, there's a shark attack a few days before the 4th of July 
you know, they want to keep the beaches open because this town operates on tourist dollars. Uh, and it was kind of like this in, in New Jersey at the time, too. So so I'm going to we'll, let's start in uh, July 1st, 1916. Charles Van Sant. He's vacationing at Beach Haven. It's like, you know, this this little town. They they refer to him as resorts. He was just hired by a Philadelphia uh, brokerage. You know, he's like, I forget how old he was. Oh, he was like 25. He's just hired, you know, just got this new job. And he goes with his father and his sister on vacation to Beach Haven. You know, they're going to have fun over the 4th of July weekend. So he gets there with his family. Uh, I, uh, I read that it was his father and his sister and everything else that I listened to and I watched said it was only his father and his sister. I don't know what happened to his mother. Uh, so, yeah, he goes for a late afternoon swim. I guess he gets there and, like, he wants to go swimming. That's the first thing he wants to do. He's like a little, he's like one of my kids. He just wants to spend all the time in the ocean. But uh, he goes out, you know, swimming. Apparently at this at this time, 1916, uh you know, people aren't just walking around with flip flops and and board shorts until he's he changes out of his suit in the little, you know, the little beach tent into his his swimwear. And he goes swimming. And like I said, at this time, you know, people, they don't think about shark attacks. So he goes swimming and he goes way out like, oh, well, let me see how far I can get. Ha ha ha. You know, type of situation. And he. He gets attacked by a shark. You know, I don't know how I, I I don't know how long he was out in the water for. Uh, apparently there was a dog, and he was like playing with the dog in the water. Um, and the dog comes back, and he and he continues to go further out, and he gets attacked by a shark. And uh, you know, a lifeguard sees this. Well, a lifeguard in the chair sees him thrashing around in the water he's like i'm sure he's screaming you know in pain obviously who who wouldn't be uh and this this lifeguard he runs out past the beach into the water swims out like this guy this lifeguard swims out towards charles you know like like he's not being attacked by a giant fish and he starts pulling charles to shore uh, and when he get, you know, when Charles gets close enough, there's like a line of people and they're all yanking on Charles, trying to drag him into shore. And apparently it was like this shark didn't want to let go. It just it had a hold of him. And, it you know, I saw that that people watched the shark. They thought that they were going to pull Charles out of the water with the shark still attached because it, it wasn't letting go. Um, and then people on shore, they could see the dark shape, you know, of the shark swimming back and forth, um, just offshore, like almost like it was waiting for Charles to go back in the water. Uh, but Charles was not, um, going back into the water. His femoral artery had been severed on his right leg and his left leg was was practically gone and and Charles would die of extreme blood loss. Uh Charles his his father 
was a surgeon. So they 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 drag Charles ashore. They drag him into the hotel that they're staying at. Uh, you know, throw him on the the front desk, and you know he's bleeding out. And Charles' dad tries to save him, but can't do anything. Charles, he's just he's I maybe even at this point he's already dead. Uh, but yeah, he's just losing too much blood uh, from both his legs. Um, and, and people would be skeptical that it was a fish, that a fish could kill anyone. Um, there was talk that it was, uh, you know, a a, a mean sea turtle or I don't, I don't even know if this is true, but I heard it several times, like a school of mackerel just like swam up on him and started eating his feet. Like that, that is to to us nowadays, that sounds ridiculous, but at this time, Charles, this would be the first shark attack on a human uh, ever recorded in the United States, and you know, it was also a time when when German U-boats were seen, you know, surfacing off the coast of of New York and New Jersey. Um, so a lot of people thought that that he had been struck by a U-boat. Um, obviously, the people who were on the beach knew that wasn't true, but as news spread, you know, he make he doesn't necessarily make the headlines uh, because the war makes the headlines, but he's in the paper and people see this and they're like, no, that kid got hit by, by a propeller, you know, or a turtle or whatever. The shark was, was the last thing on their mind. So Charles Van Sant would be the first recorded American to be killed by a shark on the 1st of July, 1916. And then a few days later, on July 6th, there's this Swiss bellhop. He's He works for this, this Essex hotel in this, you know, beach resort called Spring Lake, which is 45 miles north. Keep that in mind, north of beach haven i to me it's important i haven't really heard anyone point this out obviously but it seems fairly obvious so it's 45 miles north from from uh beach haven which was where charles van sant had been attacked so we have another charles um he's a bellhop for the for the uh uh essex hotel i think there was another one that he worked at but so this guy and he, you know, he'd obviously done this a bunch of times. He liked to swim after work. You know, who who doesn't need a pick me up after work, right? Uh, so he would, and and apparently this guy would swim as far out into the surf as he could, and he was known to do this. He did it every day after work. Um, and you know, there were some other people out in the surf with him. And Charles Bruder, his name's Charles Bruder, he's out there on, and this would be July 6th, he's out there swimming, and then something happens. And it was, you know, I I, I saw that that people around him, these I don't know if they were swimmers or boaters, these people around him thought that a red canoe had been turned over, um, so, you know, they're, they're calling out to the lifeguard, they think this... You know, this guy, you know, there's someone in a canoe it turned over and they're drowning. Uh, 
But Charles had been attacked by a shark again five days later. Um, and I forget where I heard this from, but apparently there was a woman from the from the hotel nearby. You know, it it maybe maybe it was the Essex or or a different. There were two of them right right on the beach there, but there was this woman, <laughs> and she was you know in an upper floor. And she apparently saw Charles being thrown out of the water. She saw the shadow of the shark zipping back and forth through the water, attacking him, like hitting him. You know, zip in, bite him, go away, come back, bite him again type of situation like that. And she said it looked like an airplane attacking a Zeppelin. You know, this is the World War One's going on. So, you know, they got biplanes and and Zeppelins. Um so people would have been familiar with this. Uh, so, yeah, a lifeguard you know, jumps into action. They get a, a, a rowboat this time. So they're in a rowboat. They row out to, to where Charles Bruder is. They try to pull him in. Uh, and then they, they realize that Charles Bruder is suddenly lighter. And they're able to pull him in. And Charles... His his legs are like literally bit off. So we're talking 1916. Um, and in the case of of Bruder, Charles Bruder, he was he was dead before uh, the lifeguards got him back to shore. But Van Sant, you know, died of blood loss a little while after. You know, in today's world, if someone this was to happen with someone, they would instantly hook them up to blood, you know, replenish this lost blood through a blood transfusion. But this is 1916. Uh, American doctors, they're not trained to do transfusions like this until, you know, after World War One. You know, some doctors obviously are, but not all of them. And a, a, a majority of them after World War One would would know how to to do this and they would be trained uh and hospitals would be able to they definitely would be able to do this you know this this is a whole different world we're talking about as well so you gotta you gotta keep that in mind you know they're not hospitals like there are today either so it's not surprising that a hospital in 1916 uh even though transfusions are known doesn't know how to do one so that's not surprising at all but yeah so charles bruder he he dies. He's the second to be killed by a shark. And while there are, you know, they're through Charles Van Sant, they're like, oh, well, you know, maybe it was a turtle uh, or a, a German U-boat with Bruder. They're like, it was a shark. You know, they saw it. Its legs were literally bit off. So Charles Bruder is really the first to be put down as uh, a shark attack. Charles Van Sant, I, I believe it was like a mysterious circumstance, you know, mysterious circumstances. Uh, so, yeah, these two shark attacks, you know, they're getting all sorts of attention, right? This is something that no one has ever seen before at this time. Like I said earlier, you know, there are probably people who don't even know what a shark is. Uh, so these two zoologists from the American Museum of, of Natural History, you know, this event, these events 
it, it grabs their attention. And these, these, these would be uh, Frederick Lucas. He's the curator at the American Museum of Natural History. Uh, and, and this guy, he's got, he's got no formative scientific teaching. Like he, he didn't go to school for this. He pretty much wanted to be a taxidermist. So he joined Ward's natural science establishment where he spent several years learning everything he needed uh, to, I guess, become the curator at the American Museum of Natural History. So Frederick Lucas, he's like this big, important scientist guy, even though he will find out, you know, I don't have a whole lot on him, but we'll find out he's pretty skeptical against anything that's going on. And then we have John Nichols, and he's the first assistant curator. Uh, and he started and, and both these guys, they started off as ornithologists. And so that's someone who studies fish, right? Or uh, not fish, uh, birds. So they, these guys, they both kind of start off their career uh, as people who love birds. Uh, and then while Frederick Lucas, he, you know, he becomes the curator. He never really turns away from his love of birds. But John Nichols, he starts off as this ornithologist, but he becomes a, a ichthyologist, you know, after these these shark attacks. And he really wants to get to the heart of of what's going on with with sharks. And he becomes, you know, one of the pioneers of shark, you know, shark research. So, yeah, they were they were pretty much the closest thing. You know, the East Coast had to shark experts, even though there were probably fishermen out there who had seen sharks way more than these guys had. These these were these were, you know, like men of science and all that good stuff. But but yeah, so at the beginning of July, you know, as Van Sant's being attacked, uh, neither of the two men believe that there's a shark in New Jersey who could have killed these two men. They did know that sharks and, you know, the warm waters of the South Pacific, obviously, uh, and Florida could become man eaters, especially the great white. They knew this and the tiger, but at the time it was blasphemy that someone would believe, especially someone in science would believe that a shark, a man eating shark could swim into the cold waters of New England, practically. But it's when Charles Bruder is attacked that Nichols kind of is like, I don't know, you know, this sounds like a shark attack. So Nichols goes and he investigates what's going on. Um, and he's aware that when a shark attacks something, you know, it, they tend to lose their teeth and they don't find any any teeth within the the remains of 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 Bruder or Van Sant, but he still um, he still believes a shark definitely killed Bruder. Let's cover a little bit of uh, shark science really quick before we get any further. So sharks they eat without chewing. You know they they take these big bites and they gulp it down. And it takes weeks to digest their food, up to four weeks in some cases, especially human bone. And in 1916, it's thought that sharks, you know, they would hunt through just the use of smell, like a dog or a wolf. You know, today we know that sharks, they have this, what is it called? This line of Lorenzini, um, 
So it's kind of like this this line that runs laterally along their whole body and it's it's very interesting it it picks up you know electrical fields to help them them sense their prey so like when a fish is is you know splashing around or jumping around or thrashing around creates you know energy in in the water and the sharks they they can sense that through this line and we and obviously we know they have you know a shark can sense like what uh, a drop of blood in a million gallons of water or whatever, and and I think it's called the the ampullae of of Lorenzini or or something like that. But we don't really need to get into all that right now. But yeah, so at the time this that wasn't known. They they you know they're considered wolves of the ocean. Uh, not necessarily that they hunt in packs, but that they hunt through their sense of smell. Uh, and it was also believed that sharks were venomous and that they could poison you just by biting you. So yeah, all that goes down. Charles Bruder is killed on the 6th of July, right? And so a few days later, on a Wednesday, July 12th, in this little creek known creek, they call it a creek, but it's really a river, uh, we here in New England would know it as a river. Obviously, you know, it's, it's smaller. The Connecticut River is more like the Williams River, but it, it's a river. But when we, I don't know if it's all of new people in New England, but when I think of a creek, I think of like something smaller than a brook. But, but yeah, no, this is, this is more like a river. Uh, and it's a tidal inlet off the coast of New Jersey. You know, I heard some people say it was 30 miles away from the ocean and and all that good stuff but it it i'm looking at it at, at, on a map let me bring up a map really quick let's see if i can bring it up on a map all right yeah so it says right here on weird new jersey let's see 30 miles farther north residents of matawan a small town 11 miles inland from the open ocean naturally felt that they were safe from attacks okay so i heard a lot of people say that that this was that this matawan creek and these you know these attacks that would happen in the creek were 30 miles inland from the ocean weird new jersey i trust them obviously they i got weird new england weird massachusetts you know i got a lot of these weird books uh and i definitely trust what they have to say but 11 miles is still a lot. You know, 30 is obviously more than 11. But, you know, when it comes down to it, is it can a shark even swim 11 miles? I think what it comes down to, and it, it it's one of those situations where it's everything seemed to just be perfect. The creek, Matawan Creek, the or, you know, the river itself, it, it had been dredged multiple times by this point uh to clear the way for deliveries by boat so so the the town was being you know as long probably through the railroad and and all this good stuff but they didn't have tractor trailer trucks bringing them goods all the time so what they would do they would load all these things in new york they would go through raritan bay come up the creek deliver all the the you know the the produce or, or, you know, uh, the hardware, whatever, whatever they needed would be delivered by boat. And obviously not only boat, but in, in order to do that, they had to dredge 
this this creek out in in dredge it means they would they would you know they would take s- some sort of digger and just dig the the bottom of the the creek out and make it deeper smoother clear it of of any you know debris or refuse that 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 a boat could get hung up on so so the creek was was obviously deeper than it is today it's filled in i've seen pictures of it you would never imagine a a shark in there at all but there had also been full moon two days prior or there was going to be a full moon in two days Uh, and this would have hyper salinized the fresh water of this creek and on top of that this shark it definitely most likely swam in on high tide the you know swam in with the high tide and as it's swimming uh, up the creek a retired sea captain named thomas cattrall heads out for lunch you know he's got this bait shop for people who are you know heading out to the ocean and he he closes up shop he's going to go get some lunch and he sees the shark swimming up the river so the shark is on the surface he sees the the uh you know the fins sticking out um and he jumps into action he rushes towards town he wants to warn you know all these you know his neighbors and his friends uh he knew that children swam in the creek it was a popular swimming destination for kids of all ages and not just kids but adults of the of the area it was a you know a time-honored tradition especially during summer and in 1916 was uh known as a very hot summer it it broke records all over and so he goes to town and he's yelling he says there's a shark shark is swimming up the creek and no one believes him they're all laughing you know practically laughing at him uh but he doesn't take this to heart he rushes back to his shop he jumps in his boat and he heads up river, you know, after the shark. He's going to warn anybody that he sees about the shark and he's on his way. And so um, this would bring us to the Wyckoff Dock incident. I'm just going to call it that. And and there, there are two particular docks that shark attacks happen at. I think this only takes place within an hour or, you know, two hours maybe. And um, I'm not sure, but I think Wyckoff Dock is the further dock. Um, so there, there are four friends swimming at this this Wyckoff Dock. It's a you know, popular swimming spot. Uh, <clears throat> they had swam at this location a hundred times, thought nothing of it you know that everyone had heard of these two shark attacks you know on the coast but that that's the coast this is 11 miles inland like no in, in this water this this creek matawan creek it, it's fresh water so no one's thinking anything of of there being a shark in the water that's going to attack you you know it's, it's the last thing on people's mind and obviously these kids they 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 hadn't heard this the sea captain or anything uh but there's this this little boy his name's lester stillwell um and he's 11 years old and they're swimming at wyckoff dock and oh yeah and and 
Lester, he's he's epileptic. So that kind of comes into play a little bit, but he uh they're swimming at the dock and and his you know, these three other friends that get out, and then he yells back to me, he says, Hey, watch me float, watch me float. You know, he says something on those lines. Uh so he's floating on his back, and then suddenly he is taken underwater by what his friends instantly know to be a shark. They saw its head come up. They saw its teeth grab a hold of Lester, pull him under the water, followed by the shark's tail fin propelling itself down. So it it probably splashed the water, sent water flying everywhere. Uh, and then Lester's gone. The water is is, you know, frothing in white foam, but but there's nothing to be seen. And they don't wait around. <laughs> they don't wait for Lester to come back. You know, maybe maybe they waited for a minute, like a second or two, but they're like, we need we need to get help. So they they run back to town. Most accounts say that they were skinny dipping and that they ran back to town naked. And they get they get this guy, his name is Stanley Fisher, and this other guy named George Burlew. Um, they bring them back. They tell them that, no, it was a shark. It was a shark. It got Lester. Um, and uh, Stanley and George, they had heard the sea captain. Uh, what was his name? Uh, Thomas Cottrell. They had heard him, you know, yelling about seeing a shark, but they're still not, you know, they still don't think it was a shark. They know Lester was epileptic. They think that he probably had a fit. Uh, fell in the water and and drowned, and so they they jump in to to search for him. Uh, and apparently they're swimming around. They don't find him. Stanley and George they they come back up, and they're they're about to give up. George gets out of the water. Stanley's like, "Nope, I'm gonna go down once more. Try and find him." And Stanley just he he dives down, goes to the bottom of the dredged out creek. You know, this is this area is is deeper than your normal creek, like your your normal river. Uh and he comes face literally face to face with this shark. And it's it's feeding on Lester's body on the bed of the river. And it apparently would then go after Stanley, grab Stanley by the leg, uh, kind of like upper leg. It it rips open his leg around the knee, um, and 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 Stanley's able to get you know up back up out of the water. They pull him onto this dock, you know, and and by this time there were other other townsfolk all all around this 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 Wyckoff dock area. So they're able to to pull Stanley out of the water. Uh his knee is, is tore open. They they said that it had hit, hit an artery. There was arterial spray. You know, every time his you know cir- circulation would go, it, the blood would squirt out and they they didn't necessarily know what to do other than than use a tourniquet. So they, you know, they put the tourniquet on and then the closest hospital is 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 miles and miles away, you know, and I, I believe the fastest way to get there was was through train. So they would load him on a train and, and, and Stanley would die before he got to the hospital. That would bring us next to 
this place called the Brickwork. You know, it was a private dock. And there was a couple other kids were swimming at this. And it was it was further down than than the Wyckoff dock. So apparently the shark had turned around at this point and now was heading back out towards the ocean. So and it was about a half mile away from the Wyckoff dock. But um, uh, Joseph Dunn, he's 14. He's swimming with his brother and a couple other friends at this private dock. You know, it's low, owned by the broke local brickwork you know they, they make bricks and, and stuff for building purposes or, or whatever and you know they're, they're swimming at this brickwork dock and, and this this would take place about 20 20 minutes to half an hour after uh lester stillwell had been taken by the shark so they're they're at this dock they're swimming around uh and then Joseph's brother would feel something swim by him. And he said it was hard and sharp like sandpaper. And then his little brother, so Joseph, this would be Joseph Dunn, would be bitten by the shark. It would grab a hold of him uh, by his legs and it would try to pull him under, you know, like it, it literally ingested his whole leg and... And at this point, it kind of, you know, things kind of converge at the same time. So the old sea captain is is coming up. He's yelling at the kids. He says, get out of the water, get out of the water, shark, shark. Uh, and as he's doing this, the shark attacks uh, Joseph. And somehow Joseph's brother, along with Joseph's, you know, brother's friends or Joseph's friends are able to pull Joseph from the shark's mouth onto the dock. Uh, and Joseph, Joseph Dunn, would be the only survivor of these shark attacks. He would spend two months in the hospital. Uh, doctors would say he would never walk again. They would have to amputate his legs. But it would turn out they wouldn't have to do that. He would walk. But, you know, obviously he had to spend two months in the hospital. But, yeah, so that would be, you know, the Matawan Creek attacks. So... The townsfolk, they would dynamite the rivers. They're going up and down the river with dynamite, trying to, trying, you know, hucking it in at anything they saw that they thought was a shark. Uh, and I apparently they would also, they also were trying to loosen Lester's body from the bottom through, through the shock waves or the blasts of this dynamite because Lester, his body was, was gone. Stanley Fisher. Some some say that he almost had the body up. Some reports say that Stanley he had taken the body with them and he almost they almost had it out. Some say that that he wasn't able to get it at all. But the Lester's but Lester Stillwell's body would float to the surface of uh Matawan Creek two days later on the 14th, about 200 yards from where he was attacked. Uh, near a train trestle where someone, you know, someone was walking over the, the the trestle and they they saw Lester's body, you know, and that's obviously from gas buildup within the body itself. And so, yeah, that's pretty much the shark attacks of 1916. There is one other account that everybody includes. I think, I think it's included for a reason, um, and that would be. The rare this this the Raritan Bay shark. So there was this guy, 
uh, Michael Schleiser. He was a professional taxidermist as well as a Barnum and Bailey's uh, lion tamer. <laughs> like this, this guy's got a, he's, he's, he's got a good job, right? Uh, so he was, he went fishing with a friend within Raritan Bay and um, let me look this Raritan Bay up really quick here. So Raritan Bay, it sits below uh, Staten Island uh and above let's see what can i see here let's see it's not a whole there's not really any popular destinations above uh i guess sandy hook uh would probably be something that most people would know so it's kind of like this whole area in between you know, Sandy Hook, the hook part, it's kind of inside the hook. Uh, that's all Rarit Raritan Bay. And so there was this this guy, Michael Slicer, and he goes fishing with a friend. They're, they had this drag net that they're dragging behind this little motorboat that they have. You know, they're they're gonna catch some fish. And uh, and this this is at a time when President uh Woodrow Wilson, he so he he sends sends the navy. Uh, and whoever else to the New, Jer New Jersey shore area on like a search and destroy mission. And uh, people are now scared to death of sharks and they're just killing these sharks off left and right. But no one. And, and like I had said earlier, um, you know, it takes a while for sharks to digest their their food. Uh, and no one had come across the shark with human remains inside of its stomach but uh this guy michael slicer so he obviously knows about the shark attacks he's heard all about them and he sees all these other fishermen you know killing these sharks and he just wants to go fishing so they're dragging this net behind him when all of a sudden they feel something something becomes hung up in the net and it's thrashing around it's pulling it's not coming loose, but it's pulling at the net and it starts to sink the boat. So they, they start pulling it in as hard as they can. Uh, and whatever it is, it instead of going away from the boat, it comes closer to the boat and and they see that it's a shark. It's this huge what what would turn out to be, you know, a nine foot great white shark. And you'll see a lot of pictures, uh, illustrations of this this encounter where this shark is is pretty much so at the end of Jaws when the great white jumps on the back of of Quint's boat and Quint's up top and the shark's got its mouth open it's half in the water and all that good stuff this is pretty much the Raritan Bay encounter so it's sinking their boat it's trying to to bite these two guys within the boat Michael Slicer and his friend Michael's got this this broken oar that he grabs off the dock earlier like he he just had this feeling that he would need this ore. So he gets this ore and they're beating the shark with these oars until it's dead. Uh, and since he's a taxidermist, he thinks I am going to stuff and mount this shark. This will be great. You know, these are rare, obviously. Uh, and so he brings it in. He, and because he knew of the shark attacks and this shark had been so... Uh, 
you know, vicious. He's, he's careful when he cuts it open. And what he reveals is 15 pounds of human flesh within the shark's stomach, as well as several bones. Every account I heard is different. You know, some say there were leg bones or a couple of them. I heard that there were rib bones, hand bones and all, you know, whatever. But there, the fact is that there's 15 pounds of human flesh as well as several bones within this shark's stomach. Uh, because it, he had been doing taxidermy for so long, he was a professional taxidermist. He had done some stuff for the American Museum of Natural History. And he sends the shark up there with the bones. And uh, what was their names? Let's see if I can dig up their names really quick. So Frederick Lucas and, and John Nichols, they've obviously been following these attacks. They know about the Matawan Creek attacks. And Frederick Lucas, he thinks that this this is just a shark who who found a dead body and, and ate, you know, ate that dead body. But whoever it was was already dead because these were he, he thinks that these are bones from from an arm, not a leg. None of the shark attack victims had lost arms. They had all lost legs. Um, but but Nichols is not quite. You know, he's not as sure as as Frederick Lucas. Lucas, he's very skeptical of anything. He, you know, there had never been a shark attack recorded. So he he didn't believe that that these were even shark attacks until the evidence was too much to ignore. You know, typical scientist. Uh, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but but Nichols, he, he Nichols is he, I'm pretty sure. I think it's came out that Nichols was pretty sure that this was the shark, you know, that had had killed all these people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that's pretty much the the 1916 shark attacks that that inspired the movie, the, the book Jaws. Um, and so I have a couple conclusions that I've come up with throughout all that and that would be that this was a shark who had moved up from southern waters obviously you know this shark is continuously moving north it's you know it stops at um beach haven and then swims north 45 miles to spring lake then it swims north 30 miles to matawan creek and it swims north, you know, even, I don't, you know, not a whole lot to because Matawan Creek is within Raritan Bay, but it's continuing northward to into Raritan Bay, uh, where it's stopped by by Michael Slicer. And Michael Slicer makes it clear that that there had been no, you know, new shark attacks after he had caught his shark. So. Michael Schleicher definitely thinks that his shark was the Matawan Creek shark. But um, my other conclusion would be that it was a perfect mix of conditions. So <clears throat> we all there are there are all sorts of sharks out there. But there are really only a select few sharks that can swim in salt and freshwater. And I know two of those are the bull shark. Uh, and I believe the Greenland shark. 
and I'm, I'm sure there's a couple more, but the bull shark and the Greenland shark are, are very, very large shark. Greenland sharks are, you know, in some cases, they, they grow larger than great white sharks. Bull sharks are, they don't quite grow as big as great white sharks, but they're, they're definitely known to be very dangerous. Uh, they have the highest testosterone count in any animal with, within, um, or I guess it would be within the, with they have the highest testosterone count uh, of any fish. And a lot of, and because of that reason, a lot of people say that the Matawan Creek shark had to have been a bull shark because of the fresh water, um, which would make sense, right? Wouldn't it? Well, there had been a perfect mix of conditions, and it's also known that that juvenile great white sharks prefer less salty water so like in in rainstorms they'll find that these juvenile white sharks tend to wash up on on beaches more often um let's see uh they prefer like the sounds and shorelines and shallow areas and you know i'm, I'm not I, I don't know i'm not a scientist i can't explain all this but but apparently they these juvenile great white sharks they prefer these less saltier waters. Cause I'm of the belief that the Matawan Creek shark was a great white, not a bull shark. I think it was the same shark moving its way up North. It wasn't a bunch of different sharks that just decided all of a sudden that they were going to start eating people that year. I think it was one rogue animal, one rogue shark that did all this. And so there was the, the full moon, which would create, you know, a higher tide, which would allow more salt into this tidal river. Um, it had come up during high tide, so there was already more salt in the river. Uh, and because the river had been dredged, that would have allowed for more salt water to enter the river. I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it sort of makes sense to me. So, so I had mentioned a rogue great white. And so there are, we know, at, and even in 1916, they knew uh, that there were rogue elephants or rogue tigers or rogue lions. So why not a rogue great white, you know? And I think some of the, one of the, the most famous rogue animals would be the uh the lions of savo or you know like the ghosts in the darkness you know I, th I think that was the movie um where these you know these these this british i think like the british military or uh some british company they're they're trying to put this train you know this these train tracks in throughout this section of africa and these two um rogue uh lions they were male lions uh i th i think it i think it would come out that there was something wrong with their teeth and they weren't able to hunt like normal um uh lions so they they were they decided that they would hunt 
humans and they were hunting these workers that were building this these this train line through I don't I whatever section of Africa it was but um now if that was a thing why couldn't there be rogue uh, uh sharks so it I mean it's entirely possible that there was something wrong with this shark uh it wasn't able to hunt like a normal great white it was or maybe it was just that because it was a juvenile and it didn't know how to hunt and it decided this is what it was going to do but you know those are questions we'll never know while michael slicer was able to to mount this shark it kind of it it's disappeared you know i'm sure it's locked up somewhere in someone's attic or their private collection or just maybe it's even in the you know lost in the back rooms of the smithsonian with all the other good stuff but uh but yeah uh so i guess they could tell from the the bite radius that that the the shark had to at least have been seven feet or more uh and from what we could tell from the sightings of the people who had seen it it wasn't like a a 20 footer you know or or even like a 15 footer it was it was 10 feet around around 10 feet and and slicer's shark was was i think 9 feet so that would fit uh in in a, in a juvenile great white when they're born they're born like four or five feet long so there are you know they're already quite big when they're born but i think and it is ridiculous actually you know it is ridiculous but i think there is and and i don't i can't explain it but there is science behind this you know there there would have been enough salt in the water to sustain this great white for even just a few hours uh, and it had swam up the river. It, you know, it felt these kids swimming. It took a bite or two out of a couple. And then it left. With, you know, it came in on the high tide and it left when the tide went out. So I think it it's perfectly. Okay. I think it's perfectly believable that a great a juvenile great white could have went up. Matawan Creek and attack those kids. So yeah, that's pretty much all that I had. Uh I know that that Shark Week's coming on soon and I'm a huge fan of Shark Week. I have been ever since I was a kid, like a little kid. Um you know, I love jaws. Around this time of year I'm watching jaws and all these other ridiculous shark movies all the time. It's, you know, it's like a summer tradition so i wanted to talk about this you know i want and and for our guests we'll be or our guests and for our uh our plus members we'll have this this breakdown of jaws hopefully up soon um but yeah you know i love jaws i love the story that inspired it um i think it's a even today it's technically still a mystery but it's it's an it's a good myth. I don't want to say good because people died, but it's it's definitely an intriguing mystery that I that I think is it is an intriguing mystery that I think is definitely almost canon.